Friends, what a comfort it is to know that our standing before God, our eternal fate, and even what happens in the day-to-day in our lives is all in the hands of God. That is our comfort. He is our hope. The fact that Christ is our righteousness and the fact that He is our anchor is the greatest news in the world. And that's why we've gathered here today. It's good to see everybody. Um, If we could, I think it's always wise. We do this every Lord's Day when we look to God's truth and His Word. We go to Him in prayer again and ask Him for His help because we're desperate for it. We will be wasting our time if the Spirit of God does not show up and meet with us now. So let's go and ask Him for His help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise and thanks for Jesus, who is our sure and steady anchor, who is the true and better Adam, who has come to save the hell-bound man. We give you thanks and praise for your plan of redemption that you have accomplished through your Son. As was prayed earlier, none of us deserves anything good from you. And yet you have seen fit to shower us with grace and mercy and to give us your righteousness that we might live with you forever. And because we are now your people called by your name, we ask that you would come and meet with us now as we look to the truth of your word, even in a topical message like ours will be today that contains a lot of proverbial wisdom. We pray that you would show up and that you would minister to us empowered by your spirit. We pray that we would be helped. We pray that we would be convicted and encouraged. We pray that we would be changed by your spirit through your truth. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, there are a number of newer faces in the room. Uh, This has been an unusual Lord's Day here at CBC, and we trust the Lord with that in his providence. For those of you, especially those of you who are with us today for the first time, you come on an unusual Sunday, not just because of the weather. We are doing something this morning in terms of our sermon time that is not typical for us. What we normally do here at Covenant Baptist Church is to preach through books of the Bible. We preach what we call expositional sermons, where we look at a passage of Scripture and aim to understand its main point and rejoice over what's there. And then think about what that means for our lives in this fallen world. So today, we won't be doing that. You'll be hearing a topical message. And not just that. You'll be coming in on the very tail end of a four-part topical series that we've entitled Recalibration. It's a series on grace-driven marriage. or one, You could even say grace-driven relationships. Because as we've considered, it applies to every relationship. These truths do. Uh, to every relationship that we have. I've said a lot of these things in every introduction, so hey, I've done it three times, why not four? Uh, Just by way of reminders, I have not intended for this to be a normal, typical marriage series. We have not looked at any of the passages that you would typically go to, uh, to think about marriage, Ephesians 5, or Galatians 2, 1 Peter 3, things like that. We have instead aimed to consider high-level Bible reality, high-level gospel truth, and what that means for our marriages and our relationships. Those high-level truths of Scripture obviously affect everything underneath them. And because that's how we've approached this topic of grace-driven marriage and grace-driven relationships, the content I trust has been applicable to everyone. And so I would encourage you to listen that way today. 
even if you sit here this morning and in the providence of God, you are not married, the things that we will consider today will be helpful to you. A couple of disclaimers that I've also given every week. So for the faithful among us who have been here all three sermons so far, you get it a fourth time. Disclaimer number one that should surprise no one is that in preaching a marriage sermon series, it is important that you know that my marriage is not perfect. In other words, I have not arrived in marriage. I have not arrived in the Christian life in general. If I were to only preach about things that I have a good handle on, even with respect to marriage, I would have very little to say, and it would have been a pathetic sermon series. I, like you, am in the fight. I am with you in this. I am one of us as we all, by God's grace, seek to live in a way that honors Him and in a way that's good for our spouses and our brothers and sisters. Disclaimer number two is that all of these subjects are huge and massive in scope, and so there are tons of really good things that I won't even be able to touch on in each of these sermons. We could preach a lot of sermons about any one of these topics, and so I trust that you understand that. A word of pastoral instruction that I've given every week as well is to listen for yourself. Listen for yourself as we think through these things together. What I mean by that is don't sit and listen for someone else. Namely, if you're married, don't sit and listen for your spouse. Don't be throwing bows at your husband or wife during the sermon. That's not the point of this. And as I've said each week, our tendency to do that and to listen to sermons that way is a huge part of the problems that we have in marriage. Because we are all self-righteous and others condemning. We tend to think well of ourselves and we tend to see everything in our husbands or our wives that is not the way that it should be. So don't do that today. Listen for yourself. And as I've articulated to you a few times already, I have some hopes for this series as we're ending it today, that it would really recalibrate the way that we think about marriage and it would recalibrate the way that we approach our marriages and our other relationships in our lives. And so today, friends, we're going to be considering, no surprise to anyone if you've looked at the sermon title, Trust, Love, and Submission. Trust, Love, and Submission. The first sermon, as you recall, we thought about the fallenness of the world, the fact that the world is broken, and the fact that we are also fallen. And so we talked about what that means for us and even what realistic expectations would look like for a marriage in a fallen world between two sinners. The second sermon, we looked at the kingdom realities of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of me. And we thought about that together, about how we are all so often out for that pathetic little kingdom of one rather than the kingdom of God. And then last week, friends, we considered three essential pieces, building blocks of a grace-driven marriage. And those were confession, forgiveness, and compassion. And so now today, we're kind of getting to perhaps the most proverbial of all of the sermons. So this will be a kind of a wisdom sort of sermon underneath the banner of the gospel. Just kind of truth and advertising. That's what we're doing today, and I pray that it's helpful. So... Number one, point number one, part number one, whatever we want to call it, trust. This one will probably take the most time to get through. This is a massive piece of a healthy, grace-driven marriage, the principle of trust. Friends, trust is without doubt risky in a fallen world. I'm assuming that that resonates with you, that trust is risky in a fallen world with fallen people. 
Because the reality is that we will be disappointed. We will be let down. And sometimes we're going to be hurt badly. We're going to have our hearts broken by people who are close to us. And so trust is certainly risky business. And it's massively important that we would understand and own and realize that our trust in other people or the ways that we trust others is ultimately grounded in the fact that God is utterly trustworthy. So for note takers in the room, I would encourage you to jot something down to this effect. The fact that God is utterly trustworthy is what makes it possible for us to trust our spouses. The fact that God is utterly trustworthy is what makes it possible or even reasonable to trust our spouses or any other fallen human being. We, as we rejoice in here at CBC on the regular, we rest in God's faithfulness. We rest in His sovereignty over everything and His providential watchfulness over us. And we rest in the fact that if God is anything, He is purposeful. He always is out to accomplish His purposes in every single thing that He does. And He tells us over and over again that He accomplishes all of them. And that is not in doubt. That is not in jeopardy. And so even when life is hard, we know that we can rest in God and trust Him. We trust Christ. We talk regularly here in this church. I'm glad that we do about the objective declarative realities of the gospel. The fact that outside of ourselves, objectively speaking, Jesus Christ has made perfect atonement for his people. And he has accomplished perfect righteousness for his people. And he has conquered sin and death and Satan for his people. So that through faith we might dwell with God forever. That has happened. Outside of you and outside of me and what we are called to in Scripture is to look outside of ourselves to Jesus for the ground of our standing before God, for our hope, for our righteousness, for our salvation. And the fact that Christ never changes. We just sung about that, right? That the Christ can never die. Right. And the fact that. His love, not mine, is the resting place. His truth, not mine, is the tie. That my love is oftentimes cold. My joy still ebbs and flows. But peace with Him remains the same. No change, Jehovah knows. Those things exist outside of us, friends. And that is the ground of our confidence and hope. And so those things, those objective gospel realities that are our confidence and hope are absolutely essential for us. If we are ever going to place our trust at all in another human being, if we're ever going to trust somebody who might hurt us, we've got to be looking outside of us and outside of our spouses for our hope and for our righteousness and our standing before God. We are no longer condemned. Praise the Lord. That's true. We are not destined for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, somebody. The gospel is essential and the truths of God's word are essential for us and the character of God is essential for us if we're going to ever trust one another in marriage. God sees and knows everything that is going on in us and in our marriages and we rest in that reality. That none of this escapes Him. None of it surprises Him. He is accomplishing His good purposes of sanctification through our husbands and our wives in this Church as believers, we know that that's true. 
And we trust in God. And we trust the Holy Spirit to work in us and to work in our spouses. If we ever divorce this conversation from those realities, we're wasting our time. I've got nothing to say. And frankly, you shouldn't trust any of it. Because people will hurt you. People will fail you. Your husband or your wife will hurt you if he or she has not done that already, even in recent memory. But God is upright and never sins. And we can trust Him. But friends, another essential reality that we have to consider, this is all kind of setting the table for this practical conversation on trust, is that because of sin, because of sin, we must constantly work to build and sustain trust in marriage. Because of sin, we must constantly work to build and sustain trust in marriage. That's true of any relationship. That's true of my relationship with every other member of this church and yours with me and yours with each other. So in other words, friends, in this fallen world, because we're fallen people, there's no such thing as coasting. There's no such thing as cruise control. If that's what you want, it's not going to go well. Yes, God is sovereign and we are called to act underneath the grace and the gospel of God. Vigilance and intentionality are required, in other words. And anyone in the room who's married knows that that's true. You've hit a good season and you're like, man, this is going really well. I'm encouraged. And then it's like you, you let your guard down a little bit and you stop being vigilant and intentional and you look up in a few weeks or a few months and you think, my gosh, what has happened? Things are not going well. Everybody in this room has experienced that in your relationships. Sin has affected us, friends, more than we often realize. Sin is why so much intentional work is required in our relationships. Last couple of comments I'll make before we get into some building trust principles, okay? Or principles for building trust or essentials for that. Understand that trust and safety are inextricably linked. Trust and safety are inextricably linked. And I'm not necessarily talking about physical safety alone here. I'm talking about emotional safety, mental safety in a relationship, holistic safety. Trust and safety are inextricably linked. And trust also fosters intimacy. So if we want safety in our marriages, which we all do, and if we want intimacy in our marriages, which we all do, trust is essential for both. And as trust is eroded and destroyed, there goes safety and there goes intimacy. So now, friends, what I want to do is consider, I think I didn't number them, but I think there are six. So this is all under the, still the heading of trust. I want to consider six essentials for building trust. Six essentials for building trust. This is the closest thing that I think I've ever said to like a how-to sermon, maybe. I don't even know. It feels a little weird to me. But I hope it still is like high-level gospel stuff for us to think through. Essential number one for building trust. I'm going to call it awareness. Awareness. So part of that awareness that I'm talking about is self-awareness. So that's sort of like A underneath the truth or essential number one of awareness. You as a self-aware person would be aware of your tendencies. You would be aware of your weaknesses, the bends in your frame and the jagged edges of you. The jagged edges of your personality that tend to cut others to pieces, you are very aware of them. And you are very aware of how all those things affect your spouse. So a good question, this is a 
practical takeaway, a good question for you to ask yourselves as husband and wife. You could do this with a good friend in the church too. Ask this question only, caveat, only if you're prepared to actually hear the answer. Okay, because don't ask it and then get ticked at the response you get. Great question. Ask your spouse, what are things about me that are difficult for you that you don't think I'm aware of? What are things about me that are difficult for you that you don't think I'm aware of? And let them talk. That's kind of a scary proposition. But it's a helpful thing to do. This awareness piece, though, friends, is not just self-awareness. It would be an awareness of the marriage as well. That's kind of letter B. So if you're aware of your marriage, that means that you're a, a student of your spouse. You observe your spouse, but you're also observing your marriage. You're thoughtful. You're aware of what's going on. You regularly are, so to speak, taking the temperature of the relationship. You're not just kind of doing your own thing, distracted all the time. You don't just go through the motions with your head down and the blinders on. And so a good question to ask in this way, again, only if you want to hear the answer, would be this. Sit down with your husband and your wife and say, let's talk about this. Just simple question. How do you think our marriage is going? How do you think our marriage is going? And let them talk. Again, these are very simple things, right? This is not rocket science at all. But on the flip side, friends, if you are unaware of yourself and of your marriage, it will be really hard for your spouse to trust you. If you aren't aware of yourself and how your tendencies and weaknesses and the rough edges of you affect him or affect her, you will be hard to trust. If you are oblivious to how the marriage is going, it will be really hard for your spouse to trust you. It's like, look, he, he doesn't get it. He's not even in tune to what's going on here. Or she just doesn't understand. And it's hard to trust. Second essential for building trust. If the first was awareness, the second is confession of sin. Confession of sin. It's amazing how much these things overlap. The things that we've been considering. As we thought about last week, confession would involve at least seeing your sin. So really seeing it and being convicted over it. It would involve remorse over your sin. You're legitimately sorry for the sin that you've committed against your spouse. Confession would involve humble ownership of your sin. So this is where you're not making excuses. You're not shifting blame. You are owning it, not in a defensive way, but in a humble, kind, gentle way. And then obviously confession would involve communication. You would communicate your remorse for the sin committed and ask for forgiveness. So it's important that we realize when we talk about confession of sin, sometimes we're talking about something that we initiate. We realize we've sinned and we go to our spouse and we say, hey, I'm, I'm becoming more aware of this and I want to confess that I'm sorry for that and please forgive me. But at other times, friends, and this is sometimes harder for us, it will be a situation where your spouse comes to you about something that you've done or said that's been hurtful or a pattern of behavior that's causing wreckage in her heart or his heart. And so then confession would be a response to your spouse in that sense. Your eyes are open to the sin you've committed. You see it. You're grieved. You own it. You confess it. 
And so a good self-diagnostic question in this way, friends, is this. How do I respond when my spouse comes to me about a way that I've sinned against her or sinned against him? How do I respond when my spouse comes to me about a way that I've sinned against him or against her? Honest answers would not be flattering. They wouldn't be for me. I trust they aren't for you. So friends, if confession of sin is essential for building trust, on the flip side, it's really hard for your spouse to trust you when you don't confess sin that you've committed. When you don't confess sin, you are near impossible to trust in a marriage. And when you frankly, when you, even if you acknowledge sin, but you don't say, please forgive me, like, yeah, I've done this thing that's wrong and I need you to forgive me because I am not in the right here. If you don't do that, you will be hard to trust. When you always make excuses for your sin, you're always shifting the blame, you will be almost impossible to trust. Or if you're always defensive, every time you're confronted, gloves up, justifying yourself, you will be hard to trust. Third, essential for building trust. If number two was the confession of sin, Number three, not surprisingly, is forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin. So when your spouse comes to you and confesses sin, do you forgive him? When he or she comes to you and confesses sin, do you forgive her? Or do you withhold forgiveness? We thought about this a lot last week. Are you living in that constant cycle that we considered of law, transgression, judgment? Law, transgression, judgment. Is that characteristic of your marriage? Or maybe by the grace of God, you're taking the gospel into your relationship. You're taking God's plan of redemption through Jesus into your marriage. You're taking God's extravagant grace through Christ in redemption into your marriage. You live in light of it. You live in light of the forgiveness of sin that we've experienced in Jesus. You live in light of the mercy of God in Christ that is greater than all our sin. And therefore, you extend forgiveness to your spouse when he or she sins against you. You give grace in the face of real wrong. You can call it what it is. It's sin and it's wrong. And I forgive you and I give grace because of Jesus. That's what the forgiveness of sin looks like. That builds trust. It builds the safety and intimacy. But on the flip side, it will be hard for your spouse to trust you. I would say impossible for your spouse to trust you if you are always his or her judge. You can't trust someone who is always your judge. You can't feel safe with someone who is always your judge. You don't feel intimate with someone who always is your judge. If you are regularly withholding forgiveness and wielding that like some kind of weapon at your disposal, your spouse will not be able to trust you. And to our shame, this is what we do. We use that forgiveness of sin piece like a weapon or a tool of leverage. And we wield it over our spouses oftentimes in just wicked, horrible ways. Or if... Your husband or your wife is always worried that confession of sin will somehow be flipped on its head and used against him or against her. You will be hard to trust. So when you come 
in humility and owning your sin and grieved over it and communicate it. And then that is used as a weapon against you. I, you're like that. I knew that you were like that. Or, or the next time an argument comes up, that's thrown in your face. That you sin that way all the time. Don't forget that. That's wicked. That's from hell. And it's impossible for trust to grow. The fourth essential for building trust is compassion. Again, not shocking. This is overlapping very much with some of the things we considered last week. Compassion. So, if you are the kind of husband or wife who is understanding, you realize that your spouse, like you, struggles with indwelling sin, and you act accordingly, it will be easier to trust you. Because you understand those realities, you have compassion towards your spouse in the struggle, and you realize that the particular weaknesses and the particular struggles of your husband or your wife, while you don't excuse them in sin, you have compassion. You realize that these are struggles they didn't sign up for. These are real wrestlings that are hard for them, that they would love to be out of, and yet they continue to struggle. But you get that, and so you're compassionate. You can look at your husband or wife who is depressed or who has fallen into that sin yet again. And while being hurt and while it's hard, you can say, you know, as hard as this is and as bad as this is, I know that you don't want to do this. Because Christians don't want to sin. As we've thought about, sin, sadly, for us is normal. It's not okay, but it is normal in this fallen world. So when you confront your spouse, think about this. If you're a compassionate husband or wife, when you confront your spouse, you don't go into that confrontation like some kind of boxing match, waiting for the right moment to throw that overhand right. That's what we do. We go into arguments or discussions, and it's like, I'm just looking where I can slip this thing and get the knockout blow. It's horrible. We will be impossible to trust if that's our posture. But if we're compassionate, we don't do that. We don't go into conversations with gloves up looking to exploit weakness, we are gentle and considerate and compassionate of weakness. Toward weakness. And if compassion rules the day, friends, you would even work to help your spouse in his or her particular weaknesses. But on the flip side, you will be hard to trust if you don't ever extend compassion in the struggle that's very real. If you are regularly bludgeoning your husband or your wife to death over particular sins and weaknesses and then kicking them while they're down, it will be impossible to trust you. And here's one. If you are regularly... So you know your spouse's frame. You know his frame. You know her frame. You know what makes her tick and you know what sets him off. And so then when we go into situations and we push buttons and we provoke... Rather than avoiding provocation in love, we will be hard to trust. It's like, I'm going to expose my inner struggles, my vulnerabilities to you, and then you're going to use those against me and push those buttons? How can I trust you? It's what we do. Fifth, essential to building trust, is listening and seeking understanding. Listening and seeking understanding. So this means that you give attention to what your spouse says and you act on what you hear. You don't just go into every conversation tone deaf. You listen. 
and you act on what you hear. You seek to understand your spouse. What makes him or her tick? What he or she sees as important? How he or she feels loved? These things matter. And then when your spouse comes to you with concerns, you engage, even if you don't share those same concerns. That's what listening and seeking understanding would do. And you especially seek to understand the things that are troubling your spouse. If your husband or your wife is troubled, those are things that you need to make a point to understand. But on the flip side, it will be hard for your spouse to trust you if it seems that you're rarely or maybe never really listening to what he or she is saying. And you never act on what you hear. Maybe you sit and it seems like you're listening, but you never act on it. You will be hard to trust. Or what's worse, if you make him or her feel weird or wrong because he or she is different than you, you will be hard to trust. Or maybe because of your posture and your demeanor, when your spouse comes to you with concerns, he or she leaves feeling more put down and rebuked than hurt. It will be hard to trust you if that's happening. If you don't seek to understand the things that are troubling your husband and your wife, you will be hard to trust. Sixth and lastly, the last essential to building trust is doing what you say. Doing what you say. So contrary to what we typically think, this is important when it comes to keeping promises and doing what you say. We tend to think in every arena of life that only the epic big stuff really matters. That's just not true in the Christian life or in marriage. Trust is not built in a few epic big moments. Trust is built in a thousand little ones. We have to own that reality and understand that reality. If you don't do what you have said you will do, and you don't do it in the amount of time in which you have said you will do it, it's going to be hard to trust you. But if you are the kind of person who does what you say, and you do it in the time frame in which you say it, that builds trust. I know that I can count on you. I know that I don't have to worry that that won't actually happen. If you do what you say, you're reliable. You can take it to the bank. But when you say it, it will happen. But on the flip side, if you're regularly saying, yeah, I'll take care of that tomorrow, or I'll handle that next week, and it rarely or never happens, maybe at all, or certainly not in that time frame, that will erode trust. Slowly and surely. You don't think that's a big deal, but over the course of years, decades, man, it does damage. If you're rarely or never, just like a little thing, like this, you rarely or never get home when you say you will. You're going out to hang out, I'll be home at 10, I'll be home at 12, whatever. And it's always 15, 20, 30 minutes late. Got a meeting, babe, I'll be home at this time. And you're never there on time. Even if she's gracious and she understands that that's a pattern, it erodes trust. Or if it's near impossible to trust you. So I would say it this way. Let me back up. Let me rewind. If you can't be trusted in small things, like getting home on time, or taking out the trash, or fixing that thing you said you'd fix, or whatever it is, if you can't be trusted in those things, you cannot be trusted in big things either. Why would I ever do that? If I can't trust you in the little stuff, why would I ever think I could trust you with something massive? We have to think in these ways as husbands and wives. 
So doing what you say is essential. And friends, because we're sinners, we will all do things in our marriages that compromise trust. I'm looking at many faces across this room who are grieved. And I would count myself among that number. As I thought about these things this week and was preparing this sermon, there were so many times where I'm sitting there working on this, thinking I need to go apologize to my wife. I am not doing this stuff. I am not building trust with her the way that I want to. I'm with you in this. So let's go now to our second big piece of the sermon, which we're, in which we're going to consider now love. We've thought about trust. We're now going to consider love. As we've thought about throughout this sermon series, we have considered the selfishness of sin. The fact that because of sin and its effect in us, we all are selfish at the core. We are all out for ourselves and we are all about the kingdom of me. You don't believe that. Just assess your own heart honestly, but look at your children. My goodness. Our children are made in God's image and there's so much good about them and they are completely self-absorbed from Jump Street. I mean, from the womb they are. And none of us are any different, right? So we're all about me. I'm all about my interests, my agenda. And that's a problem. We are full of self-love. And we tend to lack real love. There is a selfish kind of affection that we often have for others. We love people as a result of what they deliver to us. Or what we think they can deliver to us. Rather than having the love of God drive my relationships, right? That we would call real love. Love of God driving my love for you is real love. It's the only real love there is. It's the love of self. It's self-love that drives our relationships often. There are so many things that could be said here, but what I want to do for the next few minutes is to consider four things that real love pursues. Four things that real love pursues. The first of those is unity. Unity. Paul Tripp in the book that I recommended at the beginning of this sermon series called What Did You Expect? has a wonderful line in one of the chapters in that book. And he's talking about unity. And he says this, quote, Unity is not the product of sameness. Close quote. Unity is not the product of sameness. Many in the room need to hear this because constantly in the refrains of struggling marriages, including my own, our tendency is to constantly say, our problems come because we're so different. Take a number and get in line. Every couple is like that. We're all different. Every one of us. I, there is no husband and no wife in this room that is compatible in that sense. Oh, we're just the same. We think the same thoughts after each other. We complete one another's sentences. Jerry Maguire, it's a crock. It's not true. No two fallen, self-interested human beings can ever be compatible. So just stop with that kind of nonsense. We're different. You're, you might be different, but you are not unique in your struggle. So unity is possible when real love meets differences. When real love meets differences, unity can happen. It is self-love, purely self-love that hates differences in your spouse. Full tilt. You hate the differences that exist in your marriage because you love yourself, not because you love God. 
It is self-love that causes you to be impatient with your spouse. It is self-love that causes you to be consumed with winning arguments and being right all the time. But real love, friends, prizes unity and it works for unity even if it costs a lot. Real love listens in order to understand differences. Rather than reasoning with your own sort of structures and categories or making your own assumptions, you listen and you ask questions and you seek to understand your spouse, that there might be unity in differences. Real love is patient with differences and perseveres in differences. The second thing that real love pursues is understanding. Understanding. It is self-love, friends, that causes you to not listen to your spouse. It is self-love that causes you to be so consumed with your own thoughts that you don't hear him or her. It is self-love that causes you to be so consumed with what you're about to say that you don't even hear what he or she is saying now. It is self-love that values your own understanding of things more than your spouse's perspective. Real love, though, on the flip side, wants to be on the same page. Strives for that. Strives after understanding even when it's hard. Even when you're frustrated and you feel misunderstood by your spouse, you seek to understand him or her. That's what real love does. Real love draws your spouse into conversation and then really listens when that conversation happens. The third thing that real love pursues is intimacy. Intimacy. All right, so I'm going to say a few things right now. I don't know that I even need to make this disclaimer, but I'm going to because I want to be able to talk real. So I realize there are children in the room. I don't think anything that I'm about to say is inappropriate. But this is going to be some, some real talk with some of the words that I might use. So I trust your judgment if you're thinking, oh my goodness, run for the hills. I need to get my kids out of here. Now is your opportunity. So self-love causes us to not engage on a deep level. Self-love causes us to just, this whole notion of I just do whatever I have to do to keep the peace, that perspective, that's loving yourself, not loving the other person. Self-love also causes us to be okay with what we might call just mere cohabitation in a marriage. As long as, you know, I'm getting to watch the ball games or spend time with friends or have the lifestyle that I want or pursue the hobbies that I like, I'm cool with it. That's self-love. That's not loving your spouse. So if there's the earmuff time, here it comes. Self-love also causes us to be okay with things like pornography, with things like masturbation, with things like erotic literature or adultery. Self-love produces those things. That is not loving your spouse at all. I don't think anybody in this room thinks that that is loving my spouse. But we need to come to grips that especially those first couple, those pornography pieces and the self-satisfaction stuff, that is all about loving you and not about loving your husband or your wife. Real love pursues deep interaction, right? Real love pursues meaningful interaction even if it's hard. Real love prioritizes time to connect and talk. We build it into our schedule. 
Real love pursues sexual intimacy in a healthy, fulfilling, God-honoring way. Real love in the bedroom means that it's okay to be vulnerable. Real love in the bedroom means that we're willing to have conversations about the sexual aspects of our relationship. Real love in the bedroom serves, right? Real love in the bedroom serves, it doesn't use. Real love in the bedroom is concerned with giving more than receiving. And the reason that I'm talking about sex right now is because marriage is utterly unique in the scope of every relationship that God has made. And in the context of covenant marriage is the place where our sexual expression is to happen. And so it's important that we would think about what real love means in that kind of intimacy. That's a massive part of who we are. And it's a sadness in the church that we can't talk about these things. I don't mean here, but I just mean in general. Where else would we talk about them? The fourth thing that real love pursues is peace. Real love pursues peace. So there is a category where self-love means I do whatever I need to do to keep the peace in a selfish way. But then on the other side of that coin, there can be a self-love that causes you to be okay with conflict. And okay with strife. Like you almost get a rush out of it. It's almost just normal. This is the white noise of our relationship. Where we're always just at each other. We're constantly fighting and arguing. There's something about it that I even take sort of satisfaction in. There can be that kind of sadistic culture in marriage. Self-love also causes us to get worked up over every irritation. To explode over every quirk that our husband or our wife has. Self-love causes us to be warped out of our frame over every weakness that I see in my spouse. Self-love results in explosive anger, despondency, despair, when things don't go my way. But real love, friends, hates strife. And it recoils at the thought of causing pain. Real love overlooks irritations. Real love overlooks quirks. So we'll talk about how grace means calling what's wrong, wrong, and not overlooking wrong, but grace is a way of dealing with real wrong. That's when we're talking about sin, right? But when it comes to little irritations, little quirks, little habits that aren't sin, there is such a thing as overlooking those in love. Get over yourself. I mean, I'm speaking to myself too. Get over yourself when it comes to some of those things. Real love overlooks and shows compassion toward weaknesses. And then real love puts more of a priority, friends, on the desires of the other person than the desires of me. Again, none of these things are rocket science. This is all just proverbial, under the gospel, Bible truth. But so much of this is sanctified common sense, right? Because we're sinners, we are all prone to self-love. And this is why we must commit to building a relationship of real love with our spouse. Point number three, part number three, submission. Submission. So I'm going to go ahead and say this now. I think it's later in my notes, but it just seems appropriate. This piece is, in a way even for me, feels sort of like a tack-on to what 
I feel like the thrust of the series has been about, but I think it's important for us to consider it. And the reason that I think it's important for us to consider it is because I think there's a lot of poor thinking and misunderstanding about that principle of submission. Husband and wife, male headship, male leadership, female submission, the wife is the helper. I think there are some ridiculous things said in churches like ours. Our circles, conservative, complementarian churches, there is some flat-out stupidity out there. And I want, as best I can, to try to wrestle that stupidity from our hands. So this is why we're going to consider this briefly for just a moment. This whole conversation about submission is inextricably linked. I, I hope that you see this. This is intuitive, I trust. It's inextricably linked to everything we've been talking about. So everything we've been considering in this series flows into a healthy relationship of leadership and submission between a husband and a wife. When there is trust, that makes submission, leadership and submission thrive and happen. Love contributes to that dynamic. Confession of sin, forgiveness of sin, compassion towards the fellow struggler helps in this dynamic. It makes it possible. Our understanding of the selfishness of sin is essential if we're going to ever think well about leadership and submission in marriage. And certainly our expectations, the understanding of the fallenness of the world and the fallenness of us is essential if we're going to think well about leadership, headship, and submission. Just a couple of brief comments here that are kind of just, I want to be very clear, like public service announcement kind of stuff. The way that we understand the complementary relationship between men and women here at CBC could be outlined by a couple of things. One, we understand that men and women are obviously both made in God's image and are therefore equal in value. Men and women are both made in God's image, and as image bearers, they are equal in value. They have the same nature, the same essence. But then we understand men and women to be different in role and function. Equal in value, different in role and function. And this is important that we talk this way, because in the world, the world equates value with function. It does. It, whether the world would ever acknowledge this or not, you know, the kind of virtue signaling that usually exists in the world would not acknowledge this, but we equate value with function. The CEO is seen as more valuable than the, the person cleaning the toilets. It just is how it is. It's how the world goes round since the fall. But the Bible is not like that. Scripture equates, or I should say, assigns value to nature, to essence. Human beings have value and dignity because we are made in the image of God. And that is true of men and women equally. So, when I said earlier that I think there's some poor thinking that can exist even in churches like ours when it comes to this topic, there's a couple of ways this can go off the rails, but the, the way that it goes off the rails most often in a situation like ours is where... Oh, I'll get to that in a minute. Let me, let me go... Sorry for this, I'm going to kind of reroute. I think I want to go first to the way that it goes off the rails that's easy for us to see. Let's start there. The way that it's easy for us to see when this headship of the man, submission of the woman breaks down is when the husband, the leader, abdicates his authority. He's passive, right? We see that pretty clearly in circles like ours. We call that out. Hey, bro, you need to man up. Whatever is said, you know, I don't know. But that's easy to spot. And then also in circles like ours, we're very sensitive to what you might call the 
female usurpation of the male role. We're very sensitive to that, that the woman is usurping the man's role, she's overly assertive, whatever, and that's a problem. We see that, we call that out. They're fairly easy to spot. I think that most in the room would understand that men and women are to serve specific roles, and it's not good for the man to abdicate his role, and it's not good for the female to try to do the role that God has given to men. That's clear. But there's another way that this goes off the rails, this headship and submission piece, with respect to the husband and with respect to the wife. And this is where I think we have problems in the conservative complementarian world. I think we're a little bit blind to this reality. We have a serious problem when it comes to headship and submission. When we see the role of the husband, the dad, whatever in the home, as a role of unilateral leadership. When we see the husband's role as a role of unilateral leadership where he makes all the decisions or at least the important ones. When we see the husband's determinations and opinions, we see those to be the law of his marriage and the law of his home. That is a problem. Big time problem. Unilateral, heavy-handed leadership is not biblical for husbands. Hear me say that. It's absurd. You will be rebuked very, very sincerely, and I trust firmly by the pastors of this church, if you ever come to us with that nonsense. She just needs to do what I say. It's just like, okay, brother, pump the brakes. We need to have a conversation. Okay? So that is bad. But sometimes churches like ours or environment like ours, conservative complementarian, can lend itself to that kind of heavy-handed, unilateral leadership on the part of the dude, and it's bad. But then on the flip side, we see the role of the wife as one of just silent following. That's a problem. We see her role as one of silent following in which she just does what her husband says and shuts up about it. We see... Like we, I don't mean CBC, but people maybe like us theologically. We would see a woman who volunteers her perspective or a woman who is assertive. We would say, oh, it's inappropriate. It's inappropriate for you as a woman to be assertive. It's inappropriate for you as a woman to volunteer your perspective. If your husband asks you, maybe you can tell him. It's absolutely ridiculous. I care about this. It might be clear. It's really bad. It destroys marriages. It makes a mockery of God even in terms of how He has made men and women. It makes the church look like a joke in the world. Like we absolutely don't get it. There are hard things, certainly, that the Bible says about lots of stuff, but we don't make it any better when we fall off the other side of the horse and are extreme in the ways that we understand this stuff. That's my sort of soapbox rant, and I'm going to try to get us back to, I hope, some stuff that's more edifying. So I could talk about this in a number of ways. Like, what kind of thing are we looking for? What are we trying to achieve? What kind of balance are we trying to strike? The way that I want to do this, and I hope it's useful, we'll see. If not, it's only going to take a few minutes of your lives and mine. I want to paint a picture of what a husband, a leader, looks like in light of things we've been considering in this series. And then I want to paint a picture of what a wife, a helper, looks like in light of things we've been considering in this series. So that's what I'm going to try to do. This will be imperfect, but we hope it's useful. So let's consider the husband for just a moment. 
So a husband who would be a good leader, a biblical leader, would be very aware of the stresses and the strains that are put on his marriage and family because the world has fallen. He's very aware of that. He's got his antennas up for that. He prays for the particular challenges his wife faces in her role because of the fall. So that means if you have kids and she's the primary one raising them, the husband is praying for her. That's a unique role that's been given to her. That's hard. There will be pain in childbearing and child rearing. Everyone in the room knows that's true. The husband is praying for his wife if she's working outside the home and helping to provide. He's praying for her that she would have success and peace and prosperity in the roles that God has given and that God would keep her from harm. A biblical, godly husband, leader, would know that he has fallen. He would be very aware of his own sin and he would strive to be more concerned with his own sin than he is with the sin of his wife. He knows that like every other sinner, he can tend towards self-righteousness and he fights that. This kind of a husband would be very aware that because of sin, he tends to be all about himself. He tends to be all about his agenda and is going to tend to structure things and lead in such a way that it will go how he likes. And he fights and he prays against that kind of leadership. This kind of a husband would humbly and genuinely own and confess his sin. He sincerely would seek forgiveness from his wife when he sins against her. He also is happy to forgive her when she sins against him. He is aware, imperfectly but really, of how much he's been forgiven in Christ and of how much grace he's been shown. And so he is eager to extend that same grace and forgiveness. As I'm saying these things, I I pray you feel this too. It's like, God, may may that be true of me. This kind of a husband would be compassionate towards the struggles of his wife. He would know that she has bends in her frame and that she battles against indwelling sin in ways that are really hard for her and he prays for her in that fight. He pursues his wife intentionally and lovingly so that he might understand her better. He wants to know her concerns and her perspective. And then when he gains that understanding, he uses it well. When he begins to understand her, he uses it for her good. He protects her. He cares for her. He looks out for her. He takes an interest in the things that she has an interest in, even if he doesn't care about them at all in and of himself. And he makes her concerns his concerns. He's reliable. He does what he says. He strives to be patient with respect to the differences that exist between him and his wife. He works hard to listen well and he acts on what he hears. He makes decisions in light of what his wife communicates. He prioritizes time for deep interaction with her and he strives to be vulnerable and selfless with her in every way, including in the bedroom. He overlooks irritations and his wife's quirks. He can't stand strife in the home and so he is a relentless pursuer of peace. And as he leads, his goal is that he and his wife would be on the same page about everything as much as that's possible. He's humble in the pursuit of that. And he realizes that he could get it wrong and that he lacks understanding and perspective. He seeks his wife's input on everything that matters in their home, from their children to their finances, to their living situation, to how things are going in relationships at church, everything. He values her thoughts and insights. Ultimately, he always seeks her good and he values her good even above himself. 
What kind of a man would that be? What kind of a leader would he be? May God make it true of the men in this room. But then on the flip side, let's consider the, the women. What would, a, what would a wife look like in light of these things? Some of this is going to sound very similar. There's an amazing amount of overlap here. The wife, she would be very aware too of the stresses and the strains put on her marriage and family because the world is broken. And so she would pray for the particular challenges her husband faces. Most of the situations in this room, the husband is going to be the primary breadwinner. And his wife realizes that there's futility in labor because of the fall. And so she prays for that. She prays for him in his work. She knows that she has fallen and she strives to be more concerned with her own sin than with the sin of her husband. And she too is aware that she tends towards self-righteousness. And so her antennas are up for that. And she prays and fights against that. She's very aware that she too tends to be about her own agenda. And she prays that God would make her about His agenda. She humbly and genuinely owns and confesses her sin. And she's genuinely grieved when she sins against her husband and seeks forgiveness from him. She's happy to forgive her husband when he sins against her. Because she too knows how much Christ Jesus has done for her. And everything that she's been forgiven of in Him. She's eager to give grace and forgive. She's compassionate towards her husband's struggles. She too knows that he battles indwelling sin in a way that's really hard and she prays for him. She seeks to understand her husband, his perspective, his interests, and his concerns. And then here's a big one. The wife, she would help her husband lead her. She would help her husband lead her. And so this is where that whole nonsense about just shut up and do what he says, keep quiet, don't assert, is so unhelpful. The husbands in the room know that that's true. It's so unhelpful. So this wife would kindly go to her husband with her concerns. She would initiate that even. She would humbly initiate and put things on his radar screen that she doesn't think he's aware of. Rather than not saying anything, and then wielding that like a club later when he makes a poor decision. I could have told you. That's what was going to happen. Say something. Go to him. And then, of course, it's on him to listen. She communicates with him about how she's doing. Emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. She is lovingly clear about things she thinks aren't good for her. She's lovingly clear about things she thinks aren't good for her family. She submits, as, as she submits, her goal is that she and her husband would be on the same page, again, about everything. She's humble, realizing that she could be wrong. She values her husband's thoughts and his insights. And then, as I've already mentioned, when he gets it wrong, because he does, when he gets it wrong, she's gracious. She doesn't beat him up over mistakes and poor decisions. She's reliable. She does what she says. She strives to be patient with respect to differences that exist between her and her husband. She works, too, to listen well. She also prioritizes time for deep interaction. She strives to be humble and selfless in every way, and that includes sexually. She overlooks irritations and her husband's quirks, just like he does with her. She, too, can't stand strife and therefore pursues peace. She always seeks the good of her husband, and she, too, values his good over her own. That kind of a woman is going to be a great helper, a great wife. May it be true of the women here at CBC.
May God give grace and continue to change us by His Spirit. I want to leave you, friends. I realize we've been going for a while. And it's raining. I want to leave you with a few parting thoughts. These are brief. This is kind of parting shots across the bow. The world has fallen. It's no shock. It puts stress on your marriage. Don't tell me it doesn't. So live with that understanding. That in and of itself ought to produce patience and compassion in your marriage. Toward your spouse. Remember, second sort of parting thought, that you are a sinner married to a sinner. You are a sinner married to a sinner. So don't be surprised when your spouse sins against you. Be more mindful of your, of your sin than the sin of your spouse. We've talked about that a lot. And seek to kill pride and self-righteousness in your marriage. Kill those things. Third parting shot. Ask yourself the question regularly. How much of my anger, frustration, or discouragement in the last month has had anything to do with the kingdom of God? How much of my anger, frustration, discouragement in the last month in my marriage has had anything to do with the kingdom of God? Fight and pray against those kingdom of me things. Fourth, parting shot. Confess sin. Confess sin. Genuinely and humbly. Own it. Grieve over it. Fifth, forgive one another. Give grace. Remember how much you've been forgiven in Christ and remember how much grace you have been shown. Remember that cycle of law, transgression, and judgment. Remember that that destroys intimacy and trust. Next, show compassion to one another as fellow strugglers. Next, I don't know what number one now. Commit to build trust. Next, commit to build real love. Next, bring the gospel into your marriage and let it drive the culture of your relationship. And then finally, friends, this is sort of my overarching encouragement to you. In all of this, in every single bit of this, look to Christ. He is your Savior. He is the Savior of your spouse. He is your righteousness. He is your spouse's righteousness. He is the rock on which you stand. And you can trust Him because He's trustworthy. Praise be to His name. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we come to You now. and Many of us in this room have been convicted of things that we are doing or not doing in our marriages that are harmful. Father, we pray that You would forgive us for ways that we have sinned against our spouses. We pray that You would bring about good confession and forgiveness kinds of conversations, maybe even today, in homes that make up this local church. Our Father, we do pray for Your grace and the work of Your Spirit because we so desperately need it. You have you've promised to not leave us where we are. You've promised to change us, and so we ask You to do that. We pray that You would cause these things that we've been considering for four weeks now to characterize our marriages and recalibrate the way we think and approach them. We pray for all of our relationships, not just the marriages, that these things would be true of us. That we would love one another in such a way that people would know that we belong to Jesus. Make those things true in our body, we pray, and make them true in our hearts today.
And we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen.